Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. Today I'm going to answer your emails, so let's get into it. This first email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, I'm a lesbian, and my family of origin was extremely religious, homophobic, and abusive. When I was 17, I ran away, and I more or less have nearly no contact with my family. My whole life has been extremely traumatic. My attachment style is highly disorganized, and my attachment injuries are painful and profound. Ever since I was a young teenager, I have been attracted to fictional stories of siblings becoming lovers, not simply in a sexual way, but in a romantic, truly devoted way, although I do find the sexual aspect titillating. I have three sisters, but I have never felt attracted to them. And in fact, the thought of seeing my sisters that way repulses me. So my attraction to this narrative is completely fictional. It's not something I have discussed with my therapist, as I'm still learning to trust her, and we're working together on developing a secure attachment. How much I love... How much I love this narrative is extremely shameful to me. It feels like I don't have whatever instinct people have that immediately tells them that it's gross, like I'm missing some kind of common sense button. I want to be reassured that I'm not wrong or gross. I also want to gain the ability to find it repulsive so I can, so I can be like everyone else. End of email. There's nothing wrong with you, anonymous patron. It's a common fantasy. And like you say, you're not actually attracted to your siblings, and it's just a narrative in your mind. You know, it's the same as people having rape fantasies. Uh, there's a, there's a, a vast chasm between the fantasy and the reality. And people who have rape fan, you know, people have fantasies about being raped or about raping other people. Uh, the vast majority of those people uh, have no interest in doing it in real life. And it is, it's just a fantasy. It's very common. And the, the sibling incest fantasy is also quite common. You know, everyone has at least one taboo sexual fantasy, uh, if not multiple, right? Whether it's rape fantasy or incest fantasy, cheating, cuckold, having sex with your doctor, having sex with your teacher, bondage, um, in front, having sex in front of other people, etc. And most people, the vast majority of people with these taboo uh, sexual fantasies, taboo to our culture, would never actually want to do it in real life. Uh, you know, people have fantasies about having sex with their doctor, their physician, but if it actually was about to happen, they would run. They'd be like, no, I, I don't want to actually do it in real life. Um, some people might. But when it comes to incest, rape, uh, these kinds of things, uh, that most people are like, no, no, that sounds awful to me in real life. But man, when I think about it, it gets me going. Now, you seem to be, you know, you started off this email talking about how your life was difficult growing up, very religious, household, homophobic, abusive, you ran away, you have disorganized attachment. I'm glad you're in therapy and that you're aware of all these things. That's really good for you. Um, and you seem to be relating it to your mistreatment. You know, Having an incest fantasy might be related to your mistreatment, but it might not be. Plenty of people who have incest fantasies have lived perfectly, you know, shall we say, um, you know, securely attached childhoods. Um, and even if it was related to your childhood, that doesn't make it shameful somehow. Some people who have been physically abused will later develop a kink involving them being dominated or harmed during sex in some way, consensually. And there's nothing wrong with that. Just because it's connected, of course, there's no way to know, it doesn't 
doesn't mean that it's somehow unhealthy. Um, and you don't have, you said you're, you haven't discussed it with your therapist yet. You don't have to if you don't want to. There's plenty of things that people wouldn't necessarily bring up with their therapist. Um, it's up to you. If you want to discuss it, go for it. I'm guessing your therapist is fine with it. Um, but you don't have to. And I'm really sorry uh, if you're getting ridiculed by other people. I think you, you're in your longer email, I think you were saying that people were um, not uh, receptive for your fantasy, meaning that you would share this fantasy and go like, am I crazy? And other people would ridicule you for that. And I'm really sorry you're getting ridiculed. It's the same as being ridiculed for you being lesbian. And I'm sure you've experienced that before. You know, people will say that um, there's something wrong with you because you're lesbian. Well, you know that that's not true because there's enough of a cultural notion that um, the homophobia is the silly part of the, um, the fence. And the people who are lesbians are normal. They're fine. Uh, well, it's the same with incest fantasy or any kinky fantasy or any kink for that matter. Consensual kinks uh, are fine. And people on the other side of the fence will ridicule uh, the kinky side. And the, the people who are ridiculing and who, who think that it's somehow deviant or something, they are um, out of step with reality. And so we can look at them and say that we feel sorry for them. Um, they're probably beating themselves up for whatever kinks they have and they're uh, use it through projection attacking you. My hypothesis is that uh, kink fantasies like this, uh, incest fantasies like this, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the actual incest act itself because as you talk about, you, act, you don't want to actually have sex with your siblings. In fact, it, it repulses you. Um, but the fantasy uh, really turns you on. So it has to do with symbolism or associations. You know, possible associations with an incest fantasy is that you have to really love each other to cross that line. You know, for two siblings to have sex with each other, they really have to truly love each other to cross that line. So it's not the incest itself, uh, the actual incest itself that, that turns you on in all likelihood because, um, like, I, like, I said, like you said, you don't actually want to have sex with your siblings. Um, it's that dedication that turns you on. Um, you know, siblings have a special bond. Uh, they're always siblings. They're family members forever, right? It's like you're, um, you share a history together. You grow up together. You, you play toys together. You know, it's never ending. It's a very special bond. And to have a romantic relationship in that, uh, within that association. So like remove the fact that they're siblings from the equation. So let's say that, um, the two people were best friends growing up and they were neighbors and they were childhood friends and before they, you know, had romantic or sexual feelings, they were very good friends. And they later um, de- develop a, a romantic and sexual relationship. Well, that has, a cer- that has certain associations with it, right? Like, I don't know, there's a certain cozy feeling you get from that because um, you're very comfortable together. And you are familiar with each other's homes and families. And you'll, you'll probably always be connected because you grew up together. You have a similar history. You know each other. It's a safe environment. And so I'm guessing that all of those associations um, are uh, very appealing to you. And obviously that makes sense because given your mistreatment by your family and your disorganized attachment, you're looking for something that um, sort of 
really intensifies that secure attachment and and that really uh, is very appealing to you it's appealing to everybody but you know for whatever reason your brain locked into that and it's totally functional to have fantasies like this there's there's nothing dysfunctional about it there's nothing shameful about it you're totally fine lots of people have it don't worry about it okay so let's go on to another email um, but actually before we do that let's take a break and at, at this break is um if you're not a patron of the podcast, this is going to be the end of this episode. I'm going to respond to a lot of other emails. And so if you want to hear this full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. When you become a patron of the podcast on patreon.com, you will get instructions to hear the rest of this episode, which will be one or two hours more content of me responding to emails. And uh, you will get instructions to access our, the hundreds of other episodes in which are probably our best episodes on attachment theory, narcissistic personality disorder, um, and so on. So please go to Patreon and become a patron of the podcast. Do so now. Do it. Do it. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone, patrons. This first email is from Lydia from Philly. She says, I have been seeing the same therapist for about four years now, and we have a great relationship. I have opened up to her more than probably anyone ever, and I know that I've grown and healed quite a bit as a result. She considers herself to be an empath and claims to have physical emotional responses to the emotions of the client in the room. Generally, I am quite a skeptic when it comes to these things. However, she has definitely been sensitive to my feelings, especially when I'm not readily revealing them. She's also visually impaired and can't necessarily read my body language very much. So it's interesting how she's able to catch on when I'm not readily expressing something that's under the surface. For this reason, I feel that she is very effective as a therapist for me since I'm so disconnected from my emotions and try to cover them up a lot. She has helped me be more in tune with my feelings and needs and willing to share those when appropriate. Have you ever heard of an empathic approach to therapy? And if so, what are your thoughts, feelings about it? Um, end of email. So uh, I'm not quite sure what your therapist means by that she's an empath. That can mean a lot of things. Uh, two things that come to mind is that one, she believes that she picks up on energies, so to speak, or supernatural vibes, and that gives her an idea of what you're feeling. I guess you could say it would be similar to telepathy or, um, I don't know, that kind of thing, and or reading people's minds, that kind of thing. And uh, the other that comes to mind is that she believes that she's just really good at uh, picking up on the body language or the tone of voice or intuiting what you feel. So one explanation is supernatural and one is based in um, natural sciences, I should say. Um, so uh, either way, uh, you have a good relationship with her. You've been working with her for four years and things are working. So uh, putting aside the supernatural uh, explanation it's quite possible whether she believes that or not. It's it's even though she can't, she even though she's visually impaired, you can pick up on a lot of emotion based on uh, voice, word choice, um, all that kind of stuff. The other thing is is that I suspect that uh, she's learned over time, whether she's aware of it or not, that there are certain um, commonalities among 
people in general. Uh, I've certainly found that. And, uh, you know, uh, what, how, how do I say this? So this usually comes up with my students where I don't have a lot of time with them and I want them to uh, grow and I want them to learn about themselves and I want them to understand their emotional processes. And sometimes I, with very little information about them, I can um, take an educated guess. Uh, I, I, it's not a supernatural thing. It's just an educated guess based on their presentation and based on the thousands of people that I've uh, been on journeys with in this way. Um, this is how psychics use uh, just a little bit of information to cold read people. There's, you know, like, um, again, if you're, if we're going to look at, you know, psychics as not being supernatural, uh, when you go into a psychic office, like you show up and you're like, I want to, my palms red. Typically, uh, it's a good guess based on experience that the customer is at an, at a crossroads in their life and they don't know what to do. And there are very, very common crossroads that people will be at. Um, should I marry this person? Should I get divorced? Should I take this job? Should I quit this job? Should I move? Um, should I buy this house? There are extremely common things that people are thinking about. And so psychics, whether they believe it or not, uh, and you know whether they know they're being intuitive and using educated guesses or they believe in supernatural powers, they tend to guess uh, uh, quite accurately for people. And uh, it's similar to um, really any job where you're working with human beings in a, a certain capacity. You know, police officers can probably tell when they, you know, pull you over and they walk up to your car, they could probably immediately tell people who are trying to hide the fact that they've been drinking versus um, uh, people who are not trying to hide anything. Um, or, I don't know, hairdressers who will, or hairstylists who are uh, trying to read people for one reason or another. I don't know. So when I'm a teacher, there are sometimes when I can cut to the core with my students very fast. And if I believed in supernatural powers, I might frame it that way. I might be like, wow, I, I think I'm actually like some kind of tuning fork or tuning rod or lightning rod, <laughs> tuning rod. lightning rod for emotions. Is there some sort of supernatural thing? I mean, how did I know that this person was suffering in that way? And, uh, you know, another explanation is just like after working with thousands of people and seeing so, I mean, just imagine, and I know all you therapists out there know this, but lay people out there, just imagine uh, my life. <laughs> um, let's see, probably 50% of the time I'm at work, someone is crying in front of me and they're crying because of what I said, meaning that I helped them to cry. Uh, students cry often in my classes. I, I like to teach classes that um, have a personal element to it. And um, in my in my supervision, in my case consultation, I, I like to create a lot of safety where people can talk about whatever's going on in their life. And, you know, inevitably, even just sort of clinical issues like imposter syndrome or some sort of countertransference, um, it touches on traumas. And I want to get at that. And people will start crying. Um, and 
you know, there are days just coincidentally where every person I talk to cries. <laughs> so, so just imagine that. Just imagine my life of, um, you know, it's routine for someone to have some kind of breakdown emotionally or breakthrough psychologically in their life. And that's my job. That's my job to help students and supervisees and novice therapists and also my clients, couples, individuals. And uh, so just imagine that. And imagine th- having done that thousands of times. You know, I've, I've been a therapist 20, 20 plus years, 25 years. I've been a therapist and a professor 20, about 25 years. And, you know, times all those hours, you know, whatever it is, on an average month, you know, times all those months. And you just get used to it. Uh, it's, it impacts me in the moment. Sometimes I tear up in the moment. It, it's not like it's routine in that way to me. It affects me. But I definitely start figuring, huh, there's certain themes that people have that with a little bit of information, even just tone of voice, I can, it'll, you know, like I'll meet a student and I won't know them very well. But I'm picking up on is basically what I, the one way to put it is they remind me of five other people immediately. Like it's one thing about students. It's like, I see so many students coming in and out of my classes and in and out of my program that eventually like there are certain, um, uh, what do you call it? Like, um, archetypes that, that show up now. I'm not always accurate. I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't know, some sort of psychic, but but, you know, my body and or my, you know, sort of uh, perceptually, I just pick up on these little c- clues like it's it's probably out of my awareness like, oh, this student is very meticulous. They like to um, come up to me a lot in, you know, after class and ask me questions. Um, they're younger. They're female. Uh, they ex- they kind of have a soft voice, but um, they're they're trying to assert themselves. And so there's just some, you know, maybe there's a little crack in their voice or the, the sort of topics that they bring up with me. And I, and I pick up on that um, subconsciously and, and I'm reminded of probably people subconsciously that um, I've worked with before and been on journeys with before. And so all of that uh, it sort of comes up in my conscious mind in very subtle ways. And I start thinking, I bet you this person has a problem with being um, angry or I, I bet you this person has a lot of pain or I bet you this person feels lonely a lot. And <clears throat> just even those things that I just said, you could say that about anybody. Um, I would venture to say every human on the planet uh, feels lonely. Every human on the planet uh, is in pain. Every human on the planet wishes they could uh, be closer to other people. And so, um, so sometimes you don't even have to guess. You just sort of bring that up. And so your therapist might um, be that sort of person. It doesn't mean it's not real. It just means that uh, she's just experienced and um, has an, enough in, intuition and knows herself well enough or something. You know, one of the ways that I diagnose is actually similar to the way that she is in that I take notice of how my body feels when I'm with someone. Because through projective identification, which is, um, you know, the process of the client actually uh, transmitting certain feelings and notions into my 
uh, body into my psychology. And that is done subtly. It's done sub subconsciously for both of us and subtly uh, through our interactions. It's not a energy transfer. It's a uh, behavioral um, uh, effect that uh, is always going on between people. And so I start feeling these certain feelings and I then notice those feelings and go, oh, I bet you, like one example would be I'm sitting with a client and this is like session three. And I, I get this old familiar feeling where I start feeling like I'm not a good therapist and I don't have anything good to say and I am sort of screwing up as a therapist. And at first it's subconscious, I don't really notice it and I, I have these urges to sort of try to prove myself and then pretty soon I notice it and I go, oh, there's that feeling. And it's a very familiar feeling because uh, one, I have that natural feeling and two, uh, people uh, will induce that in me uh, when I'm when they have a certain issue. So then I say, oh, they must be through projective identification making me feel this way right now because they actually feel this way on the inside and, the, and they don't like the fact that they feel incompetent and worthless and not good enough. And they're um, trying to get rid of it through projective identification by giving it to me. And I, I mean, there's various different ways of describing it. I, I just described it in an object relation sense. But, um, but anyway, so uh, then I might say, if I wanted to, so I'm getting this subtle impression that you might be walking around feeling as though you're not good enough. Is that true? And if I nail it and I, you know, stay, say it right or I intuit the right moment to say that, they will go, oh my God, yes, I, f I feel that way all the time. <laughs> I mean, how did you know? And so, you know, I could say, well, I'm psychic <laughs> or believe that I'm psychic or I could frame it in, in the subtle subconscious effect of being in a relationship with someone uh, way, of, way of saying it. So, you know, it sounds like your therapist is that way. So patron Lydia from Philly, you go on to say, I recently became a patron of yours and immediately listened to the whole attachment theory series and loved it. I especially appreciated the deep dive into the history of attachment theory and generally feel like I understand my emotional and intimacy issues much better after having learned about attachment theory. So thank you for that. I haven't seen my therapist in a while as I've been between jobs and couldn't afford it but I'm finally scheduled to return to her and intend to continue seeing her in the future. I plan on bringing up all this attachment theory business to her, and I don't know how much about it she knows. I really want to engage in attachment-based therapy, and I wonder how I can make it that happen with her. How would you suggest I approach this? I don't know if it's appropriate to show up and say, hey, I want to do this type of therapy on me. I haven't really had any close em emotional romantic relationships, and I would really like to have that. Do you think it makes sense for me to just suggest to her that we engage in attachment-based therapy? If so, if so, how might I, I approach that? End of email. Um, well, so there's two, two ways about it. Yeah, one, absolutely. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, I'm sure your therapist would really want you to feel comfortable to say that. Uh, just say, yeah, I, I heard about this attachment theory thing, and I, I want to have that kind of therapy. Um, now, your therapist might say something like, uh, 
great, I do that kind of therapy, let's go for it. Or they might say something like, I don't know, I don't know that kind of, I don't know that type of therapy, or I don't do that kind of therapy, or I don't like that kind of therapy or something. And then you just have a conversation about it. The other thing here is that uh, a, most good therapists are doing attachment-based therapy, whether they know it or not. Uh, whenever you are in a somewhat longer-term relationship, but I don't, I don't, even short-term relationships can have this too, but particularly like, you know, once you get past uh, three or three to six months, you are in, and, and you feel like you have a good relationship with your therapist, you are engaging in attachment-based therapy because uh, because of that relationship and you feel good, you feel like they like you, you feel like they're there for you, you feel like you can depend on them, they're never late to your appointments, they remember things about you, they're attuned to your feelings. I mean, this therapist, she's an empath, and she very much pays attention to your feelings. That's attunement. And through that action, whether she calls it attunement or em empathy or you know uh, whatever she calls it, it doesn't matter because it is a secure attachment that you are experiencing. And as you internalize that, your attachment injuries will be healed over time. So, you know, that's what I'll say. I mean, I guess if you wanted to engineer it to be particularly attachment based, like, I don't know what you would do. Um, uh, like more talk about your relationship or I don't know, something along, along those lines. I don't really know. But yeah, definitely talk with your therapist about that. Um, if I had a client who was worried about asking me about something that would mortify me, I'd be like, no, 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 please always say, always ask. I don't want you to be secretive with me. Tell me what's on your mind. You also go on to say here, patron Lydia from Philly. I also wanted to ask if you could speak to avoidant attachment style in terms of raising a family. I don't really want to have kids and have always felt that way, but I suspect that it is a manifestation of my fear of intimacy because I worry that I wouldn't be a good parent as a result. Do you think that it's possible that my lack of interest in having children is related to my attachment injuries? Um, it's possible. It's also just possible you don't want to have kids. Uh, it's hard to know. Obviously, they could be related, but you know, you could heal your attachment injuries and still not want to have kids. Um, so, you know, I, I don't I don't know the answer to that question, really. Um, then you go on to say, I fear all the emotional stress that would come with being married and being a parent. Is this fear something that can be overcome through further treatment? Yeah. So as you become, um, as you internalize secure attachments in your life, you will heal and therefore your working models of self and others will be more accurate. You will start to see yourself and other people as mostly good with having some flaws and having some, you know, uh, um, you know unfortunate qualities. But 95, 98% of people and yourself are good, worth it, trustworthy, compassionate, you know, worthy of connection. And as you uh, believe that through an internalization of a secure attachment, uh, which can only be done through experiencing it. You can't be convinced of it cognitively. You have to experience it. You will begin to open up in certain ways. Now, I don't know if that will lead to marriage and children. That is, um, you know, plenty of secure, securely attached people never get married and never have kids. But it will um, increase the likelihood of you being able to meet the needs and the lifestyle that uh, you really want to have. It's quite possible that 
um, inside of you is a married with children sort of person and your attachment injuries are suppressing that because you're afraid of engaging in those kinds of relationships. It's also possible that inside of you is a single person forever who never has kids. And as your attachment injuries become healed, you will be able to have a lot of other types of secure relationships with friends, maybe serial monogamy, uh, maybe polyamory or whatever it is that you uh, find to, as a way to meet your needs. So um, I wish you luck on that. It sounds like you're on your way. Okay, this next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, I just graduated from undergrad and moved pretty promptly across the country. I started therapy last year, so she's going back in time. I started therapy last year for anxiety issues revolving around death and various health concerns, as well as a return to suicidal thoughts and self-harming behavior that I had not had with such intensity since high school. I found and connected with a therapist at my college a year ago. I have a, I have a really hard time trusting people, so it was pretty slow going and difficult at first in sessions. After a long time of resisting, I finally started to really trust my therapist, and we were hitting a good stride in the last couple months, despite knowing their relationship would inevitably be cut, sh be cut short when I graduated and moved away. For the last several sessions, my therapist and I expressed how much of a loss it felt like for both of us to end our work prematurely, and how unexpectedly emotional it was for us considering how short our time was together, um, only nine months in total. I felt quite I, I've I have felt quite grief stricken over the last couple of weeks and like I've lost a special source of comfort and stability in such a transitional time of my life. It seems a bit pointless to to try and start again with someone new, considering how long it will take to find someone I like again and then get myself to a similar level of comfortability and connected with them. When I expressed this to my therapist, he went to great lengths getting me referrals from colleagues and contacting therapists in my new city to give me a good list of referrals, hoping to nudge me towards continuing therapy. Now I am crying all the time and holding all my feelings in about it, but I just can't bring myself to call any of them. The whole thing is occupying a lot of my thoughts, and while I know in my heart that I am truly grateful for the difficult but meaningful time that I did have with my therapist, I can't help but feel regret since I am so much more in pain now because of it. And although he expressed many times how much he would miss me and how uniquely important our sessions felt, I find myself highly doubting that it meant as much to him as it did to me, which in many ways is already implied by the boundaries of the therapist-client setup. I am also constantly racking my brain for all the things I should have said and worrying that I didn't leave things well with him. I feel like I need therapy for my therapy, but I just don't have the emotional stamina to, to, to try starting something again right now. I know you've talked about terminating therapy in association, in association with grief and mourning, but is this normal? Do I put myself in this position by getting too attached to my therapist with no time left to talk about it before leaving? What can I do to stop myself from obsessing about this? End of email. Yeah, uh, this is a good email. A lot of people reach out to me with similar kinds of sentiments. Um, so you're in pain, and it's a loss. And everyone who loses their therapist uh, prematurely, which is, you know, maybe always, it's a loss. It's it's hard. Uh, and um, 
so you're normal for that. That I'm going to take a guess, and I'm going to take a guess and say that you have been uh, relationally traumatized, uh, abandoned, abused, um, not given enough love and attunement growing up, and you turned off a long time ago your hopes for other people. And you turned inward with your anger and, you know, became, uh, you had suicidal thoughts and self-harm. And it was uh, your way of coping and you, you managed to get by. You went to college, you focused on your studies, you, you know, you, you focused on things that you could control and you did well. And then things start getting a little bad and you're like, you know what, I'm going to take a leap. I'm going to go to therapy. Uh, I finally f- feel like I, I can do it. Well, now you're in therapy and you're resisting the relationship as, as you talked about. And then you start to open up because for the first time in your life or one of the only times you feel like someone really cares and they're stable and you can finally um, allow yourself to, to relax and allow your needs to get met. And you got very, very attached because it felt good and it was good for you. And I'm happy that you relaxed and let your defenses go and allowed yourself to have that corrective experience. The problem is that inevitably, given the amount of traumas you've been through, all of these other thoughts and feelings will, be, um, will emerge as well. The shame you're feeling, the regret, the pain, the way to say, you know, there's a, there's a part of you that's saying, why did you let your defenses down? Like, haven't we decided long ago that we cannot trust other people and we cannot open ourselves up to others? We cannot depend on other people. We need to do this thing on our own because there's going to be pain. With situations like you're in, which a lot of clients are, a lot of the listeners out there are in the same boat with you, therapy is a no pain, no gain situation where if you're going to gain from therapy, it's going to hurt and it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, uh, it's going to be scary. And that sucks. And there's no way around it. Like, um, if, if I knew anything about your history and about your defenses and you told me I'm about to go in therapy, I would have been able to tell you with about 90% uh, certainty that something like this was going to happen to you. Even if you, even if you stayed with him, so even if you stayed in the town that you were in originally and continued therapy with him, uh, in all likelihood, you would have had these painful feelings and and these fears. Um, you know, you have those thoughts right now. You're just like, well, um, you know, I I wanted, I really want to believe that he cared about me genuinely and authentically and truthfully. But now I'm beginning to second guess that because wait, you know, he was a therapist and. You know, if he really cared about me, he would somehow figure out a way to stay connected to me uh, in a way that I would absolutely love. So I, I think I clearly depend on him more than he cares about, or I, I cared about the relationship more than he cared about me. Um, I'm here to tell you, as a therapist, given the little bit that you said about his behavior, I suspect he authentically really did care about you. He also knows what needs to be done in a situation like that for your sake, which is at termination when you're moving out of town and 
for whatever reason, he doesn't do long, you know, long distance therapy. Most therapists don't. I don't do long distance therapy. You might have even moved to another state where he can't practice. And he made the ethical, smart call of saying, I have to terminate and it's going to be sad for her and it's going to be sad for me. And uh, I'm here to tell you that me as a therapist, I've been a therapist for, as I said, for over 20 years, uh, with the clients that I really connected with, it was genuine. Uh, Now, I always knew they were a client and I never confused them for something else. And when it came time to terminate, I terminated and I never had an urge to text them or hang out with them as friends or whatever, but it was real. When I was in the office, I would think about them in between session. Um, and it was a real thing, uh, with my current clients, I feel that way. And so, uh, so believe in that you, you, you let down your defenses, you allowed yourself to trust, do not taint that with second guessing. It's important that you allow that to be pure and true, because if you don't, it'll erase all the healing that you did with him. You can carry that with you, and, he, and as you carry that with you, you will continue to heal. I highly encourage you to find another therapist, just like your old therapist did. I know that it's hard. It, it will be hard. It'll be hard to find someone that's good. It, it, you might have to go, th- you might have to burn through five, 10 therapists to find the right one, but it is worth it. Uh, do it when you're ready. Do it when you have, um, you know, I don't know how old you are. Uh, if you're just graduating from college, I don't know, you might be in your early twenties. You have time. You don't have to do it right away. Uh, it's better soon than later, by the way, but you know, it's not like a super urgent thing. If you're suicidal, it's much more urgent. Uh, so if you have any of those kinds of thoughts, you absolutely should be at least talking to someone, calling the suicide hotline, that kind of thing, which actually might not be a bad idea because you call you can call them whenever, the suicide hotline, the national suit, just Google it, and uh, you don't even have to give your name. And so maybe that would be something you could do, at least in the interim. But it's going to hurt. So, that, so when you, I'm just going to assume that you uh, find the right therapist for you in the future, and uh, hopefully you are living in a town long-term and you start to engage in that attachment-based therapy. After, you know, at first you're going to resist. That'll be phase one. Phase two, you'll open up and it'll feel good. Phase three, all those defenses are going to come rushing in and they're going to go like, hey, uh, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure here. You're going to get hurt. This is going to hurt. It's going to hurt like last time. You know, what if your therapist closes their practice? What if your therapist moves away? What if your therapist doesn't really care about you? I mean, they are your therapist. It's, it's not, it's a, you know, you are paying them. They're, they're at work. They don't really care about you. All those defenses are going to come back and it's not going to feel good. It's not going to be intellectual. It's going to hit you to your core and it's going to suck. But as you are doing, you know, that's a symptom. You might even fall in love with your therapist, by the way or be sexually attracted, um, that's another common thing given the profile that you have laid out here, which again means that therapy is working. And you have a good therapist, they know how to process all that with you, and uh, they that, that therapist proves to you that someone will be with you through thick and thin every Wednesday at 3 o'clock or whenever your weekly appointment is. And over the span of years, 
you will very, very slowly learn that you don't need those defenses anymore, the defenses that really helped you when you were young. And you can really absorb that attachment and that secure relationship with that other human being. And you can really believe that they really do care. And it'll be less scary and it'll hurt less. And you'll have those uh, paranoid voices will be um, quieted significantly. Um, but it's only through that pain will you heal. Uh, you're, you're absorbing a, a secure attachment. That feels good. Uh, but there's a, like I said, there's, there's an associated pain and fear and panic and hurt and disappointment that comes with it. It's also sort of inevitable because of all the, again, I'm just speculating that you went through relational trauma when you were young and, uh, or maybe throughout your life. And all those hurts that were unheard, you know, you're three years old and you're not getting the love that you need and you feel terrible. You're six years old and no one is really there for you. No one really listens to you. You're eight years old and you're made to feel afraid and not good enough by a critical, angry parent or whatever. You never had anyone to talk to in those moments who could hear you and hug you and make you feel like you mattered and let you have your feelings. And so when you meet your next therapist, at a certain stage of therapy, all that stuff is going to come out. And some of that will be directed at the therapist. You will actually potentially, I don't know, but there's a good chance that you will actually blame your therapist for some of the feelings you're having. Like you might say to your therapist, um, you know, how come you can only see me for one hour a week? Uh, you know, uh, you're doing this to me on purpose. You don't really care about me. Well, this is transference, and it's, again, a good stage of therapy. It doesn't feel good. It, it's not like you're like, oh, I'm transferring right now. No, you're going to feel like you're being abandoned. You're going to feel like your therapist isn't there for you, and you're going to have those feelings. You might even verbalize those to your therapist, and your therapist has to know how to handle that and weather the storm so that they can prove to you that even under those circumstances, your therapist will still be there at you know every Wednesday at three o'clock, present, loving, attuned, healing for you. So, uh, I'm not going to say that therapy is all fun and games because uh, it's not. It's a tragedy for those who have gone through relational traumas. Many of you listeners will email me about different kind of uh, versions of this. I, I kind of feel like we should start like a Facebook group for all you or something. Cause I, I, every day I probably get multiple emails from people basically saying the same thing, which is what you're saying. Um, and it feels like you're alone, but my God, you're not. And it feels like something's wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with you. And it feels like, um, this is never going to get better, but it'll get better. You have to believe, and that is an important part of this. You have to have faith in what I am telling you and what all the research says and what all the other attachment-based therapists say and what your past therapist, I mean, you liked your past therapist, he would say this. Believe that it will work. And because if you don't believe it, you'll, you'll never go back. You know, there's a large voice inside of you that's saying it's pointless. So you have to find that 
belief and that faith. And part of it is just, just moving forward as if you do believe it. Because there's a part of you that for a while is not going to believe it. And so you, you just have to say, well, fuck it. You know, this podcaster keeps ranting and raving about it. Fuck it. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And, you know, if it fails, then, you know, screw the podcaster. Um, but I guess I don't have anything to lose. I mean, I, I, I already have a hard time with people. And if this goes badly, I, I guess it's just another bad experience in my life, you know. Uh, so go to therapy Take the time. The first few therapists you find might not be the right fit for you. Um, and uh, you, it might be hard to get the energy to do it. Get support. Uh, ask your friends. Um, I don't know. Find someone to help you out with that. Uh, and like I said, if you're not experiencing any kind of suicidality or any kind of safety issue, it's not an emergency. So you can kind of say, okay, well, maybe I'll do it next month or something. So, you know, don't feel like you have to break your back to do it immediately. But if you, if you do have suicidal thoughts, you absolutely need to be with a therapist. So please let me know how that goes for you. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, I'm a 37-year-old female. I had been seeing this therapist who was maybe seven years older than me at an agency who ended up leaving about a year ago. I contacted the agency about getting another therapist, and they told me that they only had interns available. I myself was interning at the time and felt that in the spirit of solidarity, I should go with an intern since I would want someone to give me that chance too. He turned out to be great. He has since graduated and moved on, and I've gotten another therapist who was also uh, uh, an intern and great. There is only one problem that I struggle with. I know that they are both younger than me, but I am not sure how much younger. They are old enough to know about they are old enough to know about grunge and nirvana, but they seem to be unfamiliar with glam rock and who T-Rex and Mark Bolin is. But they seem to know who David Bowie was. I know that was a lighthearted example, but I think it illustrates the point. So basically, I feel like I have to explain all this historical cultural background info to them in order to make sense in order to make sense because I don't know how much they know. I feel like it would be easier if I could just ask them their age, but is that appropriate? I'm, I'm just tired of feeling like I have to explain every little thing because it wastes time. In this context, is it reasonable to ask my therapist his age? If so, how do I bring it up? Do you have any thoughts on the matter? Uh, just chime in here. Yeah, you can ask your therapist their age. Um, it's likely that your therapist will answer that question because it's not too personal. Uh, I've had people, I've had, when I was younger, I would have clients ask me how old I was and I would usually answer, but sometimes, I mean, I'm the sort of therapist that, um, this might be surprising that I don't actually, uh, respond to questions like that because usually I don't respond by just answering the question. Usually what I am to, usually those kinds of questions come from some deeper issue. And by me answering the question, it doesn't uh, actually alleviate the issue. Because it sounds to me like you, anonymous patron, are having some trouble trusting these people, or maybe even having trouble relating to them or feeling like they can relate to you. And so it doesn't matter how old they are. I mean, they could be exactly your age or 10 years older, and they could still feel distant and not of your culture or 
Um, you know, what if they were from another country and they were your age and they just, you know, didn't grow up with uh, T-Rex and Mark Boland the way you did? Um, so uh, it, it, it's a common sort of phenomenon in therapy and age, I suppose, has something to do with it. But um, but I can tell you that, you know, I've been a therapist since I was 25 and for the first 10 years of my career, most of my clients were older than me. And some some of my clients were a lot older. You know, I I would be 27 and I would have an individual client who was, you know, 45 or 55. Or I'd be treating parents who were 45 years old with teenagers. And I was closer in age to the teenagers than I was to them. And yet I am the one treating the parents. So I can tell you that age doesn't have anything to do with one's competence as a therapist because I, I believe I was competent back then. I feel like I'm more competent now, frankly, but <laughs> I wasn't incompetent back then. Um, but yeah, you can ask. You can absolutely ask. Um, so given the way that she was asking all these questions, I was like, well, what are you doing in therapy that requires so much talk about T-Rex and, <laughs> and like uh, cultural historical markers like that. So I asked her, I was just like, you know, wh- what are you working on exactly? And she said, a lot of what I'm working on in treatment is that I've never visualized my life past 28. I never saw myself getting married, settling down, having kids. Now most of my friends are having kids. So all of a sudden I feel like I have nothing in common with people my age. So in treatment, we are talking a lot about what my life was like when I was younger, what I was into, what I imagined the future would look like, etc. The overarching goal is for me to find ways to lead a meaningful life as I get older, and I guess you could say to create a more stable identity that is consistent regardless of age. End of email. Um, yeah, so uh, it's it's hard to tell i you know the way you're talking about it you're just like you know i i really have this urge that i want my therapists to understand the cultural markers that that i that i have in my life or that i know about um you i didn't read your whole email and you mentioned that you know t-rex and mark bolin were long gone before you were even born uh so you're you're just like you know uh but you still know about him you know i'm the same way you know t-rex and mark bolin I might have been born just before Mark Boland died. I'm not quite sure, um, but yeah, I, I knew I know about T Rex and Mark. In fact, I told you in the email we went back and forth for a little bit that I went to Mark Boland's grave. It was his birthday or death day or something, and because it's in the same small little graveyard in London where Sigmund Freud is, and um, Anna Freud and all those other people, and uh, the the by far the most famous gravesite is the Mark Bolin gravesite and uh the the Sigmund Freud site is um not as uh, traveled to I guess but anyway so um and if you don't know who T-Rex is uh, google uh, he was uh, perhaps the first glam rock he preceded David Bowie and and glam rock and uh, just a uh, you know interesting guy and so anyway uh it's possible that your therapy needs a therapist uh, who's, say, your age or older, who uh, understands all those details. But um, I have a hard time imagining how that could possibly be true. Um, 
I suspect that you're subconsciously trying to push people away is just a guess. And this would definitely be something to talk with your therapist about. You know, you might say something like, so I asked this random podcaster uh, this question because it's been on my mind. You know, I, I get this impression that you're younger than me, or at the very least, you don't you don't know about all the cultural markers that are sort of important to me in my life. And uh, I've been secret, even though I think you're a good therapist, I've been secretly wondering if um, we're a good match because of that reason. You know, my, my previous therapist was someone that I think was older than me and, and sort of knew all the little details of history and culture that um, are important to me. And so it's been kind of on my mind. I've been wondering if maybe I should switch to an older therapist because of that reason. But I, you know, emailed this random podcaster and, and he was wondering, he didn't know, but he was wondering if um, I'm only fixating on that because it's a defense against getting closer to you and um, a, a reason to keep my distance uh, because of my relational traumas in my life. Uh, but I don't know. And I'd love to explore that with you. So let's add that to the docket of my sessions for the next month or so. So that's what I would do. Uh, and then explore and see where you go. Maybe it, it's true that you just want an older therapist. There's nothing wrong for. There's nothing wrong with asking for an older therapist. You know, you could ask your agency. It's like, okay, I've done. You know, I've, I'm sort of done with my current therapist. I'd like to be transferred to a new one, and I, I need that therapist to be older. Um, I like my current therapist, but I just want to switch to someone older. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Uh, I, I wish clients did that more often. You, there's a lot of benefit from sort of um, uh, seeing as many therapists as possible. You know, every therapist has a different vibe and you create a different relationship with each one of them. And so uh, if, if that's what you want to do, uh, you can even just experiment. You could be like, so I really like you as a therapist, but I'd like to try an older therapist. But if I don't like the older therapist, I want to keep you. <laughs> and, you know, to you, you might be like, oh, wasn't that sort of insulting? Uh, yeah, it is. But therapists are, are supposed to be able to handle that, even interns. So, um, you know, they have their own therapists. They have their own supervisors. They'll live and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be able to figure it out in all likelihood. So that is my answer to that question. Let me know how that goes. And uh, rock on with T-Rex. All right, this next email is from a high-level patron, Cindy. Cindy says, uh, I'm just going to summarize her email here. She says she, was a, she is a counselor at a counseling agency, and the agency helps women who have been sex trafficked. And the chief program officer or the CPO of her agency is in charge of the counseling department. And the CPO, the boss, is close friends with... A, another counselor, one of Cindy's coworkers. And the CPO and this counselor have been friends uh, even before they work together. And the CPO's wife is the counselor's clinical supervisor, and all three of them are friends. So she's uh, concerned. So she says, there are concerns among us that there are there's favoritism going on Um and see, there's concerns of favoritism that have been addressed by employees to our HR department. I would think anyone in this sort of position would have a hard time remaining objective due to the closeness of the relationship and everything involved with it. Is there an ethical issue? End of email. All right, so let's just kind of walk ourselves through the details here. 
So the supervise. So the the ethical issue here. Uh, we need to look at our ethical codes. And I don't know what ethical codes you're following, but if you're following ACA or uh, uh, marriage and family therapy codes, um, they're all basically the same. And what we're talking about here is a multiple relationship. And the CPO is not a clinician. So in a situation like that, it's it's not a clinical ethics question. It's more of just a a question of um, management and how, you're, you know, how you run your business. Uh, but there is a clinical ethical question uh, question here because of the supervisor. The supervisor is friends uh, with the supervisee. You know, the the CPO's wife is the clinical supervisor of your coworker, and I, I guess of you too. And so the CPO's wife um, is friends with um, her supervisee. So that's a multiple relationship right there. Also, the supervisor's spouse is close friends with the supervisee, if that makes any sense. <laughs> so essentially, it'd be like me if I, you know, I'm a supervisor and I was supervising my wife Stacy's best friend and I worked with her. Uh, so I, um, so my, my wife's best friend ends up coming to work for my agency and I'm her supervisor. So that's a multiple relationship. And our ethical codes apply to both our clients and to our supervisees. And it's not inherently unethical. Uh, The question is, has anyone been harmed by this uh, boundary crossing? It might be hard to determine that. And I guess it's reasonable that you have questions about it. And you, I'm guessing the resolution to this would be to get your to get, have the clinic the CPO is kind of off the hook on some level because the CPO is not a clinician but the clinical supervisor presumably is a clinician and should provide you and the others with reassurance um, you deserve reassurance if someone asked me to address that I would if someone came to me and said so uh, us at the agency here we're concerned that you as the clinical supervisor are, um, you know, acting unethically because you are friends with one of your supervisees and we're worried that you're either going to harm your friends or you're going to harm your cli- their clients or you're going to harm us because um, of favoritism or you're going to let your friend off the hook when they make a mistake with a client or something. You know, if someone came to me with that worry, I would welcome it, and I would say thank you for coming to me, and you uh, absolutely have every right to question this multiple relationship because it is something that is um, uh, a risk, and I've thought about it, and uh, here is my thoughts on it, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, I have many multiple relationships like this. You know, I'm a professor, I'm a supervisor, I'm a therapist, I'm a podcaster, I'm a I'm in a band. Um, I like to hang out with friends. You know, Seattle is a big community, but it's not that big. And for example, you know, one of my students uh, is friends with a friend of mine, and we've hung out before as friends. So I've, I've, in hanging out with my friend, I have, you know, on one or two times also hung out with his best friend, who is now a. Uh, not a student in my class, but a student in my program. And so that's a multiple relationship. And if someone came to me and asked me, uh, you know, what's going on here, 
I'm fully prepared to answer that question. I would tell them that I've already thought about it and I thought about the risks and I am monitoring that and I'm consulting with other people about the various multiple relationships I'm in and I'm, I'm quite sure that um, the risk is very low of harm to the student or to anybody uh, and, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on it? And, you know, I just enter in a conversation with that. If they somehow convinced me that uh, being, you know, kind of a, you know, two-time-a-year hangout friend with a student who m- might be in a class of mine at some point in the future, um, then I would say, okay, well, if you convinced me, I'm going to stop being friends with that person. I'm going to say, I'm sorry, I can't be friends with you while you're in my program. And, um, and that would be that. And, you know, I'm okay with that. I do that frequently. Um, you know, having said all that, I generally am not friends with my students. Um, this is sort of a, a one-off. Occasionally, um, students, in fact, I don't even, I'm not even friends with, um, on Facebook with, with students anymore. I used to, and it's not inherently unethical. It's a boundary crossing. Um, but as my podcast just get, gets more popular and I don't know, I, I just started to rein that in. Uh, because I didn't need to be friends with all those students. Um, so, uh, so that's, so Cindy, the main thing here is that you deserve reassurance from at least the clinical supervisor. Um, and, uh, you deserve to be able to voice your concerns. Um, I suspect that no one's being harmed unless you can tell me that someone's being harmed by it, it's their suspicion of harm and that uh, the clinical supervisor should be able to reassure you that uh, they're thinking about it and really trying to make sure that everyone is treated fairly and that the uh, friend isn't getting any special treatment. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of all the other sort of multiple relationships I'm in. Well, well so Christy was just on the podcast talking about her schemas if you remember patrons and she is my supervisee and she used to be a student of mine and she sometimes comes to our live events. You know, when we have, when we had our 11th uh, anniversary show, she came to that and we hung out there. So that's, that's several different relationships. A student, uh, she was a student to me. She was, she is a supervisee to me. And she was on my podcast, and she hangs out at the podcast events. So um, even though she's not a student anymore, that's three relationships that are happening right now. Uh, supervisee, uh, sort of friend, and uh, fellow podcaster or interviewee on a podcast. And before we engaged in that, I had a explicit conversation with her about the risks to her, because it's that's always the main ethical concern is it's the risk to her. Um, I can obviously think about the risk to me, but my ethical responsibility is to her because I'm the one in power and I'm the supervisor. And so I uh, laid it out to her. I said, well, here, the, you know, mainly it was her coming on the podcast. And I said, you know, here's the, here are the risks. Uh, you know, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. And um, how do you feel about that? And she was like, I'm totally fine with that. I, I'm quite positive that 
those risks are very low. And um, I really want to come on the podcast and talk about it. So, um, you know, as long as it's clear that I'm not pressuring her, I didn't actually ask her directly to be on the podcast. She just heard me uh, giving out a call to anyone who wanted to come on the podcast and talk about their schemas, and she just volunteered. Um, And I laid out the risk that uh, the podcast, you know, when we're recording, it could open up a can of worms emotionally for her that um, she might not be prepared to reveal to me as her supervisor. Um, I also laid out the risk that um, it could it could open up some difficult feelings for her that might be hard for her to um, process in the moment. I also said that um, she uh, might feel pressured to reveal more than she's w- wanting to because I'm in power over her as her supervisor. And, um, you know, she uh, is mature enough and strong enough to say <clears throat> that those <clears throat> those risks are, are not really a problem. And um, she willingly talks about her personal life and her emotions um, with others. And so she's fine with it. And she, she really wanted to come on the podcast to, to share that with other people uh, so that she could learn and that other people could learn from her example, which, you know, I commend her. So, so as a multiple relationship, um, informed consent, uh, me laying out all the risks and giving her the choice, uh, you know, her having the autonomy. That's the main thing. And I was comfortable with that multiple relationship as well. So you, Cindy, deserve your at least clinical supervisor to, to do the same for you and everyone else to uh, lay that out and to reassure you that they're responsible, they're thinking about it, and that you and the others aren't going to be harmed by that. All right, let's do one last email here. This is from Anonymous Patron. He says, um, there's some history of mental health issues in my family with bipolar disorder. I grew up amid this mayhem and was glad to start a life away from it. My parents still care for my sibling who has failed to live an independent life. Because of this, I'm no stranger to being around people with mental health issues, and in some ways, it helped prepare me for challenges to come. My son was, my my son started having anxiety and sleep issues at about age 15. The next five years up until today has been a marathon of his epically bad decisions. These include suicide attempts, mental health hospitalizations, drug use, lies, stealing, manipulation, and a churn of doctors and counselors, which unfortunately haven't really helped much. Throughout this time, there has been a supportive family, access to good mental health care, access to good medical care, parents who have kept a roof over his head, endless love and forgiveness, and so far, enough enough luck to keep him alive and out of jail. We changed schools multiple times as a teenager, and as things got worse, ended up homeschooling him to help him graduate. He's now 20 years old. The only official diagnosis he ever received was generalized anxiety disorder. Psychiatrists had had him try all kinds of meds over the years. Nothing really helped much, but several have created other problems, dependency and abuse. So just chiming in here, it's possible that the psychiatrist had other diagnoses and you just don't know it. I mean, I'll take your word for it that he was only diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, but I have a hard time believing that they 
uh, gave him all kinds of meds over the years, and all they had in the file was generalized anxiety disorder. Plus, as you get into more about his his uh, his symptoms, it sounds like uh, bipolar or uh, schizoaffective or some kind of um, issue like that. So, uh, and I suspect that that's what they were throwing the meds at. Anyway, going back to your email here. Speaking of meds, as a teenager, I could supervise these meds, but now that he's 20 years old and an adult, they were prescribed directly to him and not to me. So I had little control over how he used them. Sometimes he works with me, but usually not. After falling out with his last after a falling out with his last doctor, he walked out and they terminated his care, including all prescriptions. So fast forward to today, I find myself with a 20-year-old who can be moody and defensive, but otherwise a pretty normal normal guy until he's not. Several times a year, he'll have what I call a string of bad days, similar to manic episodes in terms of length and odd behavior, but not like I remember with my sibling. Uh, you know, my sibling had high energy, elevated mood, uh, but uh, it's so it's similar to that, but not the same. On these days, he's wrapped up in random thoughts and bizarre actions, violation of personal space and property, screaming, crying, ranting, wishing he was dead, without any self-awareness or thought of consequences toward others. During these periods, there's no reasoning with him. We just end up playing defense and try to mitigate the damage to his relationships, employment, trust, and so on. He's totaled multiple vehicles during these episodes, so I can't trust him to drive anymore. He can't, keep, he can't keep a job. Employers won't tolerate his behavior. He often won't remember what he did and feels very badly after, uh, but nothing changes. So just chiming in here, uh, it's, it's complicated and it's hard to tell, obviously, but it does some, sound like some sort of mood disorder. Uh, mania can look like a lot of different things. Plus, sometimes people can have mixed uh, presentations. It's also possible that his bipolar, if he does have bipolar or some other mood disorder, it's possible that it's getting worse and the episodes will start looking more like what you remember in your siblings or the people in your family. Um, but uh, obviously, I can't tell from uh, without actually assessing them. And it's actually not a specialty of mine anyway. But um, so, yeah, it, it sounds... It sounds like, you know, some kind of serious mental illness with episodes of um, of mania-like behavior. And so uh, it's quite concerning. Let's see. Going on with your email here. He's got a big heart and people like him until they see the person he can become. When he was a minor, I could make him go to a doctor and a counselor. It didn't always help, but at least I felt we were trying something. They would try different meds. They would try different coping skills, and he had someone besides me to confide in. As an adult, I can't make him do this. When he does go, it's usually after bad episodes, and by then, uh, and by then he's pretty normal and forms a reasonable expectation or reasonable explanation of what happened. Street drugs uh, have certainly been a factor, though I don't think it's the root cause. It seems like it's another attempt to self-medicate and just complicates the situation. Just chiming in there. Yeah, a lot of people who suffer from mood disorders and other disorders that uh, it looks like he's in the class of, well, people people will use street drugs, illicit drugs, 
to cope because uh, like marijuana, opiates, alcohol, uh, I, I suppose occasionally speed can can help. They, they find that um, it, do, it does help. Uh, so but of course, it comes with complications and addiction and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, uh, yeah, you might be seeing that accurately going on with your email. He's also a type one diabetic. So we're managing blood glucose glucose all the time. And he'll periodically threaten to use his insulin to end his life. So there's that too. I don't want to give up on him. It feels like we've been at this for five years, seeing psychiatrists, going to counselors, trying everything to no avail. It it gets better, then it all comes crashing down again. I don't know what to do to help him at this point. I keep hoping that age and experience will help him get past this, but it feels like wishful thinking. So here's my question. For a parent living with a dependent adult who is suffering from mental issues, who has no diagnosis nor meds that help, and is always living from one crisis to the next, what recommendations would you share for improving this endless cycle? End of email. Yeah, this is rough. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is starting to go out. It is, uh, it is almost 1 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> <clears throat> and my voice is starting to go. Um, yeah, this is a rough situation, anonymous patron. Uh, it's a really tough situation. You are completely powerless. Um, you know, we have this myth in our society that psychiatry and medicine and counseling can help. But as you can see, it doesn't. Um, even if he was compliant with uh, treatment, which he isn't really, it's possible that nothing would help. Um, it's possible that there is no medication today that will actually help at all. And this happens sometimes. Uh, Medications only work to a certain extent for a percentage of people. Um, And, you know, he's 20. There's a chance that this is only going to get worse. If he does have some version of bipolar or schizoaffective, it's, uh, it's, I would give it a, you know, 50% chance that his symptoms are going to increase in intensity, you know, throughout his 20s. And, um, you know, it's going to be really tough. So uh, I've been with uh, people like you and families like you before. Um, uh, schizoaffective bipolar disorders, these aren't my specialty. But uh, I'm a, as a family therapist, I certainly worked with a lot of uh, families like yours in conjunction with psychiatry and other kinds of services. So, you know, I get it. And, you know, uh, if the afterlife is um, commensurate with the amount of suffering or, you know, if it, it, it's, in some Christian circles, the more suffering you go through on this planet, uh, the, the bigger your house is in heaven. It's quite possible you're going to have a giant mansion in heaven. The amount of patience you've had, the giving you've done, the love you've given, the second chance and, you know, third chances and fourth chances you've given the leeway you've given, the stress at night, worrying about him, uh, getting him another car, uh, listening to him, uh, letting him confide in you, trying to get him help. Uh, It is uh, saintly. And um, I've been with families like yours. And uh, like I said, you you deserve a, a huge hug and a pat on the back. So you're asking, you know, 
You know, what do you do in a situation? Well, the first question is, what can you do? Uh, you know, is because again, we have this notion in our society because people like you are often shunned and marginalized, and their stories aren't heard, and we end up believing in our society that uh, there are answers. You know, it's just you gotta you gotta find that specialist. Uh, you know, because there are websites with therapists who say they can solve this problem. And everyone else seems to be doing fine. You know, why, are, why is our family suffering? Well, as a family therapist, as a couples therapist, as an individual therapist, I'm here to tell you that even though your neighbors look like things are fine, in all likelihood, they're not. Uh, we just walk around with a lot of shame. We try to hide everything. And so uh, you're not alone. Uh, and I hope you do actually find other people to talk to about this. But let's assess your options. And this is just off the top of my head. Number one is to keep the same approach. Just, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, wait for him to um, improve somehow or to turn a corner or something. It's it's not an unreasonable plan. Uh, you could, uh, you know, try to reason with him, try to, try to help him, um, try to hold things together and wait for him to mature enough for him to somehow figure out a solution to this. Because as an adult, his treatment is up to him. Um, at least uh, until his symptoms get worse. So that's not a bad option. You know, I've worked with families like yours before, and sometimes we just figure, you know what, even though this doesn't feel good, uh, it's the best option, you know, because uh, the, the other options aren't, aren't any good. Um, option two is to threaten to kick him out if he doesn't follow your rules and follow the treatment recommendations put forth by his uh, professionals. Uh, it's, it's likely that um, counselors and psychiatrists are recommending that he engage in services in a more consistent way, and he is uh, probably not following those treatment recommendations. He's not following your rules. He's using drugs. He's you know um, crashing cars. He's he, he's do, he's doing things now. You know, as you know, his symptoms are such that he doesn't really know what he's doing when he's having those episodes. So you know, but. I've worked with families in this way before too. And although it breaks your heart, it's like, look, kid, unless you, you know, uh, follow treatment recommendations and prove to us that you're actually trying to improve your life, uh, we can't sit by and watch you destroy your life uh, and destroy our lives in the process. So you're going to have to move out and you're going to have to, uh, you know, you can destroy your life and on your own. Uh, but we love you and we want to help you and we want you to live here, but you're going to have to uh, be healthy and you're going to have to try. And I know it's hard, but, you know, try. Now, the risk of doing this is you might actually have to th kick him out, which is hard to do. And when you do kick him out, suicide might be a thing because he's threatened that. Um, you might not ever see him again because he might hate you. There might be bigger consequences for his, for his behavior. Um, so there's risks. But they're, you know, if, if they're not risks that would be reasons to just completely get rid of this as an option. There are families in your situation that will do this. The hope is, is that one, uh, maybe the threat will get him, you know, off the couch and actually, you know, following treatment recommendations and maybe even involving you in the treatment more. Um, maybe the uh, having him actually get kicked out, he's on his own. And now he's like, no, you know, because he might still sort of be immature and um, 
still thinking like a child in that, uh, you know, when, when children are suffering, they just sort of flop and expect their parents to catch them. Uh, you know, when, when a seven-year-old is hurt, you know, they fall down uh, the stairs or something and they're, they skin their knee. Uh, they cry and they just sort of flop and they hope that someone, you know, you as a parent will run up and take care of them. And that's normal, right? And it's possible that given his issues, he might be kind of regressing a little bit. And then when he has these problems, he might be kind of flopping on some level and just being like, um, you know, expecting you to catch him. But But then when he's better, he's like, he tries to assert himself like he's 20. And that, you know, he tries to keep you out of the loop. And so it might be that he just needs to be on his own so that he stops flopping and starts to take responsibility for his own life. Obviously, I can't suggest that as an option. Um, I don't know your situation. Um, So uh, as a third option is to get a therapist for yourself. Someone who knows how to parent a kid like this. Uh, would be great. You know, a family therapist who has worked in situations like this before would be great for you and whomever else in your family. Uh, your son probably wouldn't go because it sounds like he's not super enthusiastic about that sort of thing. But um, uh, but it but it'd be great if he did, if you and him go to therapy and you start talking about these things. Now, it, it, it might not, it's not going to take away his symptoms, but it might be part of what needs to happen in terms of, um, you know, moving forward. And even if you just went for yourself, you might need someone to talk to to get that support. Um, I would, if I was in your situation, I would absolutely need my own individual therapist to vent with and to process my feelings. And maybe the therapist will help you kind of sift through these options. Maybe, you know, I've worked with parents in situations like this where uh, for months, if not years, we just go over these options. You know, they come into the office and they're like, oh, my God, you can't believe what happened this week. And they spend, you know, 25 minutes venting. And I listen. And they feel better after they vented. And then I say, okay, well, let's review the options. And they're like, okay, thank you. And then we review the options again. And they're like, well, I don't know about that one. Like, well, what about – and we just sort of go through those options together. Uh, As a therapist, I never suggest any option. I just kind of lay out what I think would happen and what the pros and the cons are. And the parent eventually starts to have clarity and starts to feel confident in the actions that they're taking, whatever it is that they decide. Without that venue to vent and to talk about the options with someone who knows what they're talking about and who cares, uh, parents like yourself can feel quite aimless and shameful and like nothing is really happening. And so you need, you, you might need that therapist. The fourth option is instead of just kicking him out, maybe just getting stricter with the rules, um, you know, like um, unless you start being more proactive with your treatment, uh, we're going to take away your Xbox or something. I don't know. Uh, that, that one's a tougher one without knowing more detail. Uh, the fifth option here is to get him into a facility, to get him into inpatient or even day treatment. Uh, it's expensive. Uh, sometimes insurance covers it. Uh, could be great for him, could be terrible for him. But that's another option, and um, that might address his treatment needs, and it also might give you some respite from the consequences of his behavior because he won't either be at home or he won't be at home as much. Uh, Sixth option is um, maybe ease him into independent living. You might want to look into 
independent living programs that uh, have people like this. Uh, he, in essence, could be uh, deemed as someone who has a disability, could go on SSI uh, or uh, you know state or federal help money help because of his mental disability, um, which I guess is another option that you could look into. So, you know, again, when we look at these options, there's no really good option um, because none of these options are going to take away his symptoms. And none of these options are going to get him to be more proactive and more mature about his own path. Um, you know, that is those, those things, you know, his his symptoms are up to the gods and his maturity and willingness to be proactive is up to him. And you are not in that driver's seat. And so you're just trying to either engineer the circumstances to encourage him to be more proactive or, uh, you know, to find some magic help from um, or uh, you're the only options you have beyond that is to try to protect yourself. And I want to honor that, that he's 20 and um, you have the right to, you know, everyone has to draw the line for themselves, but uh, you don't have to self-sacrifice for the rest of your days. You know, you have a sibling who still lives with your parents because of their mental illness. Um, it's quite possible that this is somewhat genetic and, you know, uh, they have, you know, your son has what your brother or sister has. And um, without some kind of plan, you might be um, housing this child for the rest of your life. And that's not a bad thing. Um, I know families who, although it's not sort of ideal, it's the best option because they don't want the kid to go into inpatient. They, um, they want, they love their kid and they want to help. Uh, but I also want to throw out the option of like, um, you don't have to do that. Um, you know, you've put in 20 years of very, very good parenting work. And uh, if you felt like you would like him to take over or to transfer his dependency to someone else, um, that is absolutely justified. It's just one of those decisions that you just have to dig down deep and figure out what you want to do. Um, so I would talk with your family and him and figure out a long-term plan. I would sit down and say, okay, where are we right now and where do we want to be in the future? And, you know, just brainstorm, you know, maybe sit down and you're like, okay, I'd like you to be less symptomatic, but I don't know if that's realistic. Um, I would like you to be independent. How does that sound to you? You know, he might be like, yeah, it sounds good. I'd like you to be able to drive a car uh, without getting into a car wreck. I'd like you to be able to hold a job. I'd like you to be living on your own. I'd like to, um, you know, go to your wedding one day or something. I'd like you to uh, go to school if you want to have friends. Um, okay. This is where we can all agree that we'd like you to go. Uh, how are we going to get there? You know, what are the steps? Um, uh, let's, let's brainstorm, like, you know, how are we going to get there? And, you know, maybe you have a loose timeline on that, like, you know, okay, in the next three years, this is where we want to, we, we want you to be. But, you know, without that plan, without the, those goals that you have with him, it can feel like, it's like, well, what the hell are we doing? Uh, are we just sort of treading water? So I really recommend that, and again, a family therapist could help with that. 
Also, obviously, get support. You you deserve that, whether it's therapy or otherwise. Maybe a support group with, uh, you know, parents of people with mood disorders or something. You know, get that support because uh, you you deserve it and you need it. Uh, if if you're just alone in this, that's uh, impossible. Um, and I, you know, really recommend you get your own therapist. But yeah, it's rough. Uh, you know, he's your son. You love him, and you care about him, and it's. It's in your bones, man. Like uh, you can't let him go. You can't reject him. You can't throw him into the streets. Um, It's just not an option, right? And you know that it's not his fault. He's suffering. You know, it's this is something that he doesn't have control over, really. Uh, And uh, you know, what are you supposed to do? And isn't it your responsibility, you know, to uh, take care of him during these times of need? And, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just, it's an impossible situation. And there are so many parents in your shoes, parents with, uh, kids who have severe autism or who have developmental delays or who have, um, other mental illnesses, uh, that, uh, affect, you know, their behavior at home and whatnot. Um, these are, uh, you know, situations where, Parents become isolated. They come. They become very stressed out. They uh, are frustrated. They don't know what to do. They end up, you know, fighting with their kid a lot. Um, and it's it's just it's rough. It is rough. And there's no um, services. Uh, I, this is one of those things where if we had a different society, maybe I don't know, hundred years from now. Our voters and politicians will allocate tax money to things like this so that you would have a team of people who would just come to your house and uh, be there for you and your son and your family and kind of slowly figure things out so that you're not alone, so that your son is not alone. And uh, uh, But, of course, those kinds of services, services are extremely rare. Um, or too expensive or too brief or something. And, um, you know, and you have the life that you have. Uh, Of course, this isn't reassuring to you (laughs) saying that one day um, services will be available because we'll all be long, long gone by then, I suspect. But I'm just saying that I acknowledge that, you know, you're just standing there um, frustrated, wanting someone to help and have gone to so many professionals, you know, I just can't imagine how many appointments you've driven to, how many counselors and psychiatrists you've talked to and how many times you've thought, Oh, maybe this is going to help. And then it didn't. Uh, I I mean, I've been there as a clinician and it's, and I actually, I've been there personally too. I, I, I have people and families that are in my life that are going through that. And, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's a tragedy. It's almost like a grief process of just like, I'm grieving the life that I thought I was going to live. You know, when your kid was 10, you thought, okay, you know, when he's 20, he's going to be in college and he's going to be living a life and he's going to be having fun and friends and dating. And, um, I'll see him and every, you know, I'll, I'll check in with him once a week and he'll tell me about what's going on in his life and we'll be buds and we'll go fishing together. You know, when he was 10, you probably had all those ideas because, you're a good father and uh, you had those dreams and all that's been shattered. And so 
it, it, you also maybe even had a vision of like having an empty nest so you could, you know, finally get back to those hobbies you wanted to get back to or work on your marriage or, you know, your sex life or whatever it was that you were putting on the back burner. And now all of a sudden you're saying, wait, I might be housing my kid for the rest of my life. Uh, and and this kid who is an adult takes more attention and stress than raising like a three-year-old. Uh, you know, it, it's a grief process. It's it's a loss, and it's just um, it's awful. So uh, you know, I really, I really empathize with you on that. Um, and let me know how things are going. And if anyone else has any suggest other suggestions, uh, let me know, and I'll pass them along. And uh, that does it for that episode. Uh, let's see if I have any closing remarks. I've been telling people to review us on iTunes. Because uh, recently I dipped over there and found that there weren't that many reviews, uh, at least commensurate with the amount of listeners we had have. So, um, and uh, at some point, me and Umberto were will read all the uh, you know all the new iTunes reviews, and uh, we'll get a kick out of it. So, if you want to send us a message through that venue, go ahead and do that. Um, also, patrons, thank you so much for being a patron. Uh, you know, re- remember that uh, part of your money has gone to help uh, people in real ways. Uh, I have taken over $10,000 of the money that you've given to the podcast, you people, and uh, put it towards LGBTQ organizations, charity organizations, Trevor Project, uh, Camp Ten Trees, put it towards Pet Finder to help animals, all those cute furry guys uh, from being euthanized and set them up with, um, you know, loving homes. Uh, Plymouth uh, Housing Group, which is an organization in Seattle that tries to, uh, that actually does give homes to actual people. This is a wonderful organization that um, is at the cutting edge of um, actually improving people's lives through not only giving them actual homes, uh, but services and all that kind of stuff, getting them back on their feet, giving them the dignity that they deserve, um, and also scholarships. Your, your money, about about five dollars $6,000 of the money has gone towards actual human beings who needed the money to get through school. The first person we, uh, we gave the scholarship to was had completely run out of money and was at the cap of the loans she had um you know she discovered that you uh, the the feds have a cap on student loans which is $250,000 and she she you know she was almost done with her doctorate and she had she had reached that cap and so she wasn't able to register for her classes but when the scholarship came along it gave her that money to um, finish her degree, and and she, and she has already done so much great things in the African American communities in in Seattle, and uh, continues to do that. Uh, I mean, I could just go on and on about her. She, it would, go to the website; it's a very impressive story in terms of what she has already done with her uh, clinical skills and her research. And then our second uh, re- uh, scholarship went to someone who does music therapy with people in the military, and she also has <clears throat> done tremendous work with people and uh, volunteered her time to uh, promote programs, brand new programs for uh, you know military folks with PTSD and, and head injury. And so that's your money. You know, your, 
you're actually, uh, you know, putting those things forward and helping those people out. Um, we're just sort of directing it in that way. So thank you so much for being a patron. It's just, it's just really a special thing. It's, it, it really is for, for me to, um, to, uh, it's just humbling to have people go to the you know website and sign up on Patreon and give their hard earned cash <clears throat> so that this podcaster can, um, yammer until one fifteen in the morning. Uh, about things that um, he's passionate about. And now I'm referring to myself in the third person. So it's time to go to bed. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. (laughs) 